You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. A team from this church, we spent a week in Orlando, Florida. We were at our Foursquare International Connection, and wow, we got out just in time because on the way out, this massive storm hit Florida. You can pray for the folks there. They're underwater, a lot of water, so we want to pray for them, but we felt it. We felt it going out. We got home safely. Annette's with a group of young adults right now, and uh, they're off doing their business, taking care of business, uh, raising some funds, and... Uh, and doing what young adults do and how we sponsor our internship here. So you can always be sure something's happening, something's going on, and it is a lot of fun. Well, good morning. You know what I like? Any time that we're able to study God's Word is really special. It's so special for us to get together and do that. But when we study God's Word together like we are and we have been these last few months, uh, there's something so honoring to God about that. When a whole church, and I'm talking about our children, our, our youth, our adults, we're all doing the same thing together. And we don't get to do that very often. We probably need to do it more. Uh, we are now. We're just going through, and we're studying. Uh, the, the, the title of the series is The Gospel Story, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. I tell you what I've enjoyed the most. I've enjoyed watching your kids run up to you after the church service telling you what they just learned and what you just heard in this building. Man, they come to you with their craft in hand or they come to you with a story and they, they give their version of the story. Have you found out that kids have a different version when they talk to you about what's going on? Their story is unique. I don't know if you've heard this before, but the little boy who came home and his mom said, what are you studying or what did you talk about at church? And she said, he said, well, we talked a lot about Andy. And she thought, well, Andy, there's no Andy in the Bible. Andrew, you know, a disciple, but no Andy. She goes, no, Mom, we sang about him. Andy talks with me, Andy walks with me. We talked about him a lot, sang about him a lot. That's the way kids come up with things. I don't know how they hear what they hear, but I know my kids did, and I know my grandkids are doing the same thing right now. A few weeks ago, we talked about a phrase, a, a phrase that I think is important for us today. And I want to share that again because it really bears worth repeating and that's the prayer that I have for you and for me and for really God's people is that we would have a passionate curiosity for God and for his word. And the reason I'm praying that because I, I know the days that we're in in some ways bring a, a kind of a numbness to us who we are emotionally and spiritually and that I need a passionate curiosity for God's word. I need a passionate curiosity for God. I'm going to continue to pray that, and that's what I've been seeing in our kids during this session, during the, the series that we've been in, is there's this excitement for God and his word, and I look at them and I think, God, that's what I want. That's what I need in my own life if I would be like one of these, I mean, that, that I would be so curious about what God is up to in his word, what he's up to in our lives, and I'm thankful that he inspires us with his Holy Spirit. So I'm going to encourage you to continue to pray the same way. Just say, Lord, would you give me... Would you give me a passionate curiosity for all things God, for you uh, and for your word? And I know that that's going to make a difference in your life. And speaking of God's word, I want to thank Shannon and Brian Rance. They did such a great job, didn't they? Uh, they filled in, stepped up, did an amazing job teaching through this series. It's, it's not easy to do, that's for sure. By the way, we have, we have some great folks that are going to be showing up here. Uh, next week, you're going to hear from my dear friend, Robert Flores. Many of you have heard from Dr. Flores before. You don't want to miss it. 
You're going to have fun. It's so much fun for me to give these assignments because I'm not letting these speakers get off the hook. I'm saying, hey, you got to talk about Solomon and his sin. You know, that's what next week is. And, <laughs> and he goes, really? Do I got to do that? Yep. Just can't pull one out of the file, baby. You got to study on this one. And so he called me yesterday. I was in the airport. And he goes, I got to talk to you, man. I got to talk to you. So he goes, now, this is what you want me to do, right? And I said, yes, you cannot get out of it because we're all doing this together. Uh, we also have the privilege in about a month from now having our Foursquare president, Randy Remington, is going to be here. He's going to be sharing with you as well. And Randy's a great guy, leads the nation, the world, uh, for Foursquare right now. And so he's going to come and share. And I'm saying all that so that we, uh, we know that, that, that God's stirring up some things, not only in our hearts, but others as well. And I, I'm sure that when you hear from these individuals that will share with you, you're going to hear things that you've been hearing, things that God wants to work out in your life, and God is confirming in your life as well. That's just the wonderful nature of the Holy Spirit, just coming in and affirming and confirming things that he's already speaking to us. So be looking forward to and praying for that. And right now, what I want you to do, if you'd open your Bibles, you brought your Bible today, open it to 1 Kings. If not, we have Bibles around this building. We have the Bible on the overhead. You might even have an app that you can look into. But either way, just turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. Because it's here where we're going to talk about King Solomon, and he dedicates the holy temple to God. That's what this is all about. I don't know if I've ever taught this particular message, so I got excited just digging in. I was praying for that passionate curiosity, and I think it hit me, and I'm so thankful for that. But this is something that, that his father David always wanted to do. It was David, actually, who battled the Jebusites to gain the, the hill of Moriah, Mount Moriah, that later became the Holy Mount, and today called still the Holy Mount, but Jerusalem. And so David, David laid down his life for this. I mean, he, he, he paved the way in blood and in sacrifice to make sure that Israel had a permanent home that they could call God's place of dwelling. And that would be the place of Jerusalem. It's amazing because in this passage of scripture, what you see is you see this transition between David as king to his son Solomon as king. And you can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 2. But King David passes the kingdom of Israel on to his son, King Solomon. And, and in this transition, David didn't get to do something that he always wanted to do. Uh, he wanted to build he always wanted to build the dwelling place for God's presence. Now, you would think that that man would be qualified, wouldn't you? You would think that someone who has the moniker or the label, a man after God's own heart, would qualify to build the temple of God. But he was not qualified. God did not let him do this. In fact, God specifically and expressly told David that he would not be permitted to build the holy temple. And the place that he says such is in 1 Chronicles chapter 22. It says, but this, the word of the Lord came to me. This is David speaking. And he's talking to his son Solomon as well. You have shed much blood and have fought many years. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. And I will give him rest from all of his enemies on every side, his name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. This was 
a man who had much blood on his hands. David had blood on his hands. Shedding blood was in David's blood. That's one thing you have to understand, that, that, that there were things about people in the Bible, and I'm so glad that God didn't jump over those imperfections. I'm so glad that God talks to us about people who have deal with, you know, just brokenness in their own life, and, and David was one of these people, and God says, you can't do this. Man, you cannot build a place of peace for my presence when you have this much blood on your hands. Now, again, we saw the reason, and I think the reason for me had a lot to do with David because David was a warrior king. In fact, his public career starts out on the battlefield, if you remember. The, the young boy David faces the, <clears throat> the Philistine giant named Goliath. So <clears throat> right away, you get a sense for where David's trajectory in life is going to go. I mean, when we know about him being on a battlefield, then we know that's probably where he's going to have a lot of success. And to succeed and thrive as a warrior king requires a certain disposition, that there's certain characteristics that warrior kings have. David was no different. And one of those characteristics in David was remember who wronged you. You see, you see David, he had a heart that would lean toward vengeance. And, and how do we know that? Because the Bible tells us about the guy who did something like this. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 6, and then jump to verses 8 and 9, I'll read them to you. David is talking to his son Solomon. He's passing on the kingdom. And these are his last words before he dies. This is what's amazing. You would think of a lot of things probably to say to your son before you die. I don't think you would imagine any of these things coming from your mouth. I really don't. But, but they came from David. And this is what David said. He said, deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. What's he saying there? He's putting a hit out. He's putting a hit out on Joab. That's, what he's That's who he's talking about. He's talking about Joab. It's interesting because Joab is his nephew. And Joab, probably when this is being stated or when David's dying, giving his last breath, Joab's actually off to the side over here conspiring on how to get Solomon out of the kingship and get his man into the kingship. There was other faults in Joab's life. He was a killer. He was a murderer. He was a scoundrel. He did great things for Israel, was one of David's great generals. <clears throat> but David said, you know what? You got to take him out. You got to take him out. And then he goes on. David goes on. Now, this is, his, this is on his deathbed. He goes on a little further, and he goes, and, and you remember? You have to deal with Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite uh, from Birchim. And then you will call, who called down bitter curses on me the day that I went to Mananim. That's the day that he walked out of Jerusalem because Absalom was chasing him. His son was wanting to take over the kingdom. And when he came down to meet me, he's talking about Shimei, came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord that I will not put you to death by the sword. Now listen, but now do not, but now do not do that to him. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. A second hit. I mean, this is an assassination. David's saying, I want you to go after these two guys. These two guys I have not forgotten. They messed with me. And you know what he's saying? He's saying they're going to mess with you. And what's interesting about this, and I know there's a lot of intrigue, there's a lot of blood and guts that go on here. But one of the things I think that's happening here is David puts out a hit on these guys, Joab and Shimei, and that's the last thing he does. Can you imagine? You say all that. Read, read the text there. It's kind of interesting. It says, he says this, and then he dies. It's like, what? What just happened? 
They didn't say, hey, that a boy, go for it. Solomon, you deserve it. I'm proud of you. You worked hard to get here. doesn't say any of that. He says, kill these two guys. That's, that's what you need to do. And then he draws his last breath on the planet. So I think David knew that both of these men could and would cause trouble for Solomon. I think that what was happening is they would be too much for Solomon to handle in the early days of his kingship. Because he knows how much trouble they caused him. You know what a problem that, 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 he, what, that these guys were to David. And he's just saying, now you got to go take care of this. There are a few lessons, and I want to draw your attention to a few lessons. I mean, I'm reading this. Lessons that stood out to me about this secession from David to Solomon. Uh, one of them, of course, is building the temple was for Solomon and his generation. I don't want you to forget this. It's very specific. This is a task given to Solomon and his generation, not to David and his generation. So what God is saying is, David, this isn't for you. This isn't for your generation. But it is for Solomon and his generation. Every generation is given a different task to carry out God's plan. When I was reading this, I was thinking, wow, this is no different today. Because in the New Covenant, you know what our great mission is. The great plan of God is go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, with that given, that's the major plan. Every generation has carried that out. They've been tasked, anointed by God, to, to, to carry out that task in a unique, different way that fits that generation, that fits those leaders. The same is true about what's going on today, what's happening in life today. That's in every generation. I think when I look at where I am right now, I think that we look at the Great Commission. We know that we've carried it out. We want to continue to carry it out. We've done it in the personality, the expression, and the giftings that God has given us in this church. It doesn't mean that ours is always right or always wrong. It doesn't mean anyone else is right or always wrong. It just means this is who we are, and this is how we carry it out. Now, here's something else. When God says no, I want you to hear this. When God says no to one leader in one generation, like he did with David, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love David or that generation. It doesn't mean that God's mad at David or that generation. Sometimes when we read this in the text, we're thinking, wow, that's really harsh. I mean, no, David, you can't do this. you got blood on your hand. But there is a grace and a love that comes with this. There's a grace and a love that abides with God's no. It simply means God wants to include the generations that are going to follow. And there's, again, there's specific giftings in this plan. You know, we're temporary. And I think that's what I'm reminded of when God says no and says yes to another generation. You know what he's essentially saying? You're not going to last forever. I mean, you, you aren't going to be around forever. You are temporary. And I'm going to give you your time here on this planet to accomplish. And I will equip you to accomplish as much as you possibly can under my anointing. But that's only a fragment of what I want to accomplish. It's only a fragment of what I want to do. Because God's plan is eternal. Say amen to that. I mean, there's no one generation that gets to do it all. That, that we share this with the other generations. And so God shows love and grace when he says no with David. And he passes it on to Solomon. I like this. The reason I like this is the same thing happened with Moses. If you remember, God said no Moses, you cannot go into the promised land. You got a little angry there. You hit the rock, and so you can't go in the promised land. But this is what I'll do. This is what I'll do. I'll take your spiritual son, Joshua, and I'll let him and all your kids go into the promised land, and you can watch it happen. Listen, if you don't get to do it, the next best thing is to have a front row seat and watching your kids do it. 
And that's what he does for Moses. That's what he does for Solomon. He says, David, you're not going to get it, but let me tell you something. I'm going to give it to your son. I'll tell you, that is incredibly satisfying. I have three kids and eight grandkids, and, and when I see them excel and do the things, and some of those things I, I think to myself, yeah, I always wanted to do that. Yeah, and the Lord says, yeah, yeah, I know that, but no, no. We're going to let this generation do that, and you resource that. You better not interfere with that. Did you know I heard a good friend tell me one time, he said, you know who messes up the, the present move of God? It's those that were in the former move of God because they want to tinker with it. They want to get involved in it. They want to mess around with it. And listen, the best thing we can do is just make way and just say, God, here it is. We're going to do that. And that, that, that is my heart is just to be able to say, I want to make room. I want to make a way. And here's what I want to do. I want to clear any obstacles that are in the way. Now, I'm not putting a hit out on anybody. I'm not going to do that, but I want to clear obstacles. I want to make a way for the next generation, and I can let you know specifically and clearly, this is my assignment right now. This is one of the things I'm looking at. I'm looking at you. I'm looking at the church. I'm looking at my life. I'm looking at everything that's going on, and I'm saying, Lord, what is it I can do to make way for this transition, to make way for the way of the Lord in this next generation that you want to do your greatest work? What is it that I can do? And what is exciting is I think I heard this from the Lord. Hey, you're going to get to see this happen. You're going to get to watch this take place. I'm excited about that. I think having a front row seat is, is pretty, it's a pretty amazing thing to be part of. So when you look at these stories, and you're talking about the narrative here and the transition. We are talking also about how do we find Jesus in all this? Because you remember, that's part of the series title is finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Well, I stumbled on something that I hadn't seen before, and it has to do again with David and Jesus and some of the comparisons there. And I want to I share those two with you. Both David and Jesus actually wept over Jerusalem a thousand years apart. They wept over Jerusalem a thousand years apart. So when did it happen for David? Well, if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 15, you're going to see David leaving Jerusalem because he's being chased out by his son Absalom. And it says as he's going up, he's on the Mount of Olives with his back turned to Jerusalem. He's leaving. He weeps over Jerusalem. Now, compare that to Jesus a thousand years later. What's he doing? It's the same road. It's the same place. He comes. He's coming in with his face toward. It says his face is toward Jerusalem, but he stops in the same place David did, and he weeps over Jerusalem. That's what he does. So here's what both Jesus and David saw from that same perspective. They're looking from the Mount of Olives back toward the Golden Gates right there. That's where they're looking. That's probably where David exited. That's where Jesus is actually going to enter. But it was that, juxta it was that place of, 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 of connection right there between David and Jesus for the same reasons. Do you know what they both wept over? They wept over the lostness of Jerusalem. They, they were weeping over the lostness of their people and the rebellion that comes with it. Their rebellious hearts. David is weeping over the rebellion of, of, of Israel, of Jerusalem. So did Jesus. And I, I, I was reading this thinking, you know, I need to, I need to do the same thing. What, what hurts God needs to hurt me. What God weeps over are the things I should weep over. And one of the things that we could say we could be broken and we can weep is certainly over rebellion that we see at times. We can say, Lord, that just breaks my heart 
to see people just, just scattering and running and doing their own thing that goes away from God. And that's the thing that we want to weep over. That's worth weeping over. That's worth interceding for, is for a generation that might end up rebelling against God. So who is this man Solomon? I mean, there's a transition going on. What's his resume? What's his credentials? I mean, you're going to pass it on if he's the next king. And we're going about it different than the other kings. If you remember, Saul's appointment was different. David's was a little more like, like Saul's. But now this is totally different. David is passing this on. So God says to Solomon something I'm not sure is said anywhere else, at least not this way. God says to Solomon, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Whoa. That's a big one right there. He's saying to Solomon, ask for whatever you want. What is it you want? What do you want me to give you? I don't know how long Solomon fasted and prayed over that. I don't I probably would have had answers really quick, and they might not have been the right ones. You know, I, I think about what I would have impulsively probably said, and I'm sure that most of what I would have said would have served me particularly. But Solomon responds, and he responds in a way that I think honors God and honors his kingship. And the first place is in 1 Kings 3, 9. says, so give your servant, Solomon, a discerning heart to govern your people. Solomon's saying, above everything else, I want this. And to distinguish between right and wrong, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? If I don't have this, I can't govern your people. And then you look at 1 Kings 4.29. It says, God gave Solomon wisdom, a very great insight, and a breath of understanding as measureless as the sand of the seashore. What did Solomon ask for? He could have had anything. He said, God, give me wisdom. I need your wisdom. I think Solomon made, made a way for all of us. Because James repeats that in the epistle of James. What does it say? If any of you lack wisdom, what do you need to do? Ask God. It doesn't give you a whole lot of qualification. You don't have to jump through a lot of, uh, of hoops there. You don't have to jump over a lot of hurdles. If you lack wisdom, what do you do? Ask God. I think Solomon, here's a forerunner to that passage in Scripture. Ask God, if you lack wisdom right now, whatever you're facing, would you do this? Ask God. With this wisdom, what does Solomon do? Well, he becomes incredibly prolific because what we have is Solomon's contribution to God's word. Solomon authors three books in the Bible. He authors Proverbs. That was written in his Middle Ages. Um, and he talks a lot about wisdom. He writes Ecclesiastes. That's written actually in his older age. You know what he says when he gets older? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. I mean, he's just like, oh, man, we're all going to be dust. We're going to all die. Not real cheery. Not really cheery at all. And then you go to the Song of Solomon. He writes that in his youth. And what's that about? Passion. I mean, that's youthful passion. So you see him walk through the stages of life, and he gives us these contributions, and they're pretty amazing. And so we come to this place in 1 Kings chapter 8, and the first 21 verses is about Solomon gathering all the people to make a little short trip of about five or six blocks from the city of David where the Ark of the Covenant is being held and walk up to the top, the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, and there was going to be the dedication of a temple. By the way, in today's money, just give you some interesting figures, in today's money, just the temple structure would be worth about $30 billion. The whole complex on the Temple Mount is over. It's north of $100 billion in today's money. 
This is a massive project, and he does it in a relatively short amount of time. I mean, he recruits so many people from all over. He recruits foreigners to help him with this. They put this thing together, and he waits. After it's really built, he waits for a while. He waits for about six or seven months, so people are getting excited about this temple that Solomon has built because you could see it from miles away. It was incredible. It was glorious. And so Solomon brings the Ark of the Covenant up, and then what does he do next, starting at verse 22? And I'm going to run that through with you. He starts to pray. It's a prayer of dedication. It's a prayer of dedication over the temple. And by the way, I think it's a good framework for all of us in prayer. Because when we look at this prayer, it's not only an Old Testament prayer, but this is a pattern for what you see in the New Testament and New Testament prayers. In fact, it is somewhat of a pattern of the Lord's Prayer. When you look through the elements that exist in this prayer. Listen, I want to improve my prayer life. I was reading this, got, got, and I probably, but I, get, I got guilty. I think, man, I, I, don't, I need to pray more. There's two things I always feel like I fall short in. One is prayer uh, and the other is leadership. I always feel like, man, I'm just, I, I fall short in these areas. And I go here and I'm going, man, this is just killing me. I wish I could, I could pray like this. And I think for a lot of us, um, our prayer life might get ignited during a time of trouble. You know, when we really need help is the time we pray. And I'm going to say this to you. I'm going to relieve you of all guilt. That's okay. I mean, where else are you going to go? You go to God in a time of trouble. But, but here's, here's my thought in this, that I wouldn't just pray in times of trouble. Rather, the times of trouble would teach me how to pray all the time. That when I'm in a time of trouble, that it would be extended into my life. But I think we're all short-lived a little bit in this area. You can look at statistics in the church history, and recent statistics show us this is who we are. Because of each calamity that we faced in this nation, going back to uh, the Gulf War, going to 9-11, all those things, prayer and church went skyrocket for about a year. It just took off. And then kind of the whole hum kicked in, and, and I don't know what happened altogether. Did we stop praying as we should? I don't know all the details. I don't propose to be an expert on that. I just know that that's what happened. I don't want that to happen in my life. I, I want there to be this pattern and habit of prayer. And this is what Solomon does beginning in verse 22. It says, Then Solomon stood up before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel. He spread out his hand toward heaven and he said, Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on or below the earth you keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way what does he do here listen Solomon does what I think all of us should do and that's recognize the nature and character of God what, what is how does the Lord's prayer start hallowed be thy name holy be your name Look at the apostles and the way they pray. Stephen prayed this way. When he's about to get stoned to death, he prays this way. He says, God of heaven, the one and only true God. That's what he does here. Solomon leads the way there. It's a healthy perspective of God. And I want to tell you, if you don't start prayer out with a healthy perspective of God, the rest of the prayer typically is just wind. But I want to start always and say, God, you are the one that can take care of this. You are the great. You are the holy. You are the magnificent God. And so what does he do? He starts this out by praying this way. I love when we hear men and women 
pray this way. This is the way that I want to pray. Have a healthy perspective of God. Then it moves on to verses 24 through 26. And it says, you have kept your promises to your servant David, my father. And with your mouth, you have promised. And with your hand, you have fulfilled. I'm going to stop right there just because of time. You can unpack some of this. That's the essence of what that scripture says. What's it saying to us? Solomon recognizes not only the character and nature of God, but he recognizes God as the maker and keeper of promises. Listen, to make it through, to make it through any kind of difficult circumstance, you need to understand that your life is anchored always in the promises of God. That's how you get through without falling apart. That's how you get through because you know and believe and trust in the promises of God. And for you and for your family, those promises are yes and amen. They're yes and amen. Listen, if you're a parent, a grandparent, I'm going to encourage you to pray those promises over your kids. Maybe you've done that already. I want to encourage you to keep doing that. In fact, I'm going to ask you to do something. If you remember before you leave today, would you share, if, you, if you're up to it, would you share the promise that you've pay, prayed over your kids and your children? And if you put those in the, in the boxes in the back, I'm going to take those, we're going to put them on a, a sheet of paper, and I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to join you praying for your kids, praying the promises of God over your kids, over your family. Prayers that begin by recognizing God's character and nature sets the tone for the rest of this prayer. And what he's saying is God's promises are what preserve and keeps our children on and on from generation to generation. Can you say amen to that? It's only the promises of God. God has given Annette and I promises for our children, for our grandchildren. And oftentimes we'll repeat those promises in his word every Christmas, every Christmas Eve. You've heard us talk about that. We pray over our kids, our grandkids, and we put the promises of God on that Christmas tree. And we have a, a tradition that we take those promises off when we gather together and we read them. I, read, I look every one of my kids in the eyes and I read the promise of God to them. Why? Because I know it's the promise of God that keeps them from generation to generation. And I've watched my kids go through their teen years, and I've watched them go through their 20s, and now they're in their 30s, and I'm watching God's promises be fulfilled. Parents, have patience. doesn't happen overnight. It really doesn't. God's promises will endure. If you believe in him and trust in him, they do endure. And then you go on a little further, and you look at something else here in verses 27 through 30, and I'm just going to extract what he's saying here. It says, but will God really dwell on earth? And he says, the heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, God. You know what Solomon's saying? Solomon asked God to dwell in this place and honor those who seek him. He's saying, when you come in here, when they come in here, when people come in here, you're much bigger than what they see here. This is, this is great. This is where we're going to worship. He actually is praying almost a new covenant prayer. He's seeing something of a Messiah coming, and he's, he's, he's resonating that in this prayer. He's saying, because later on, everyone thought you just had to, it, God was only right in the temple. And that if you got there, that's when God would answer your prayers. People still believe that today. When you go to the Western Wall, they pray there, and they believe the closer you get to where God's presence is and was, then your prayer would be answered. And we say, well, God is everywhere. You know what a good Jew would say? Yeah, but it's a local call right here at the Western Wall. But God is everywhere. And Solomon says, I see that. And, and listen, the glory of all this is, is what's happening now and what's happened in your life. God cannot be contained. 
in walls. The heavens cannot contain him. And yet, it's that very God and his spirit that dwells in your human heart. First, or, uh, First Corinthians chapter 6 says, who is the temple of God now? It's you. You are where God dwells. Aren't your bodies the temple of God's Holy Spirit? Somehow I think Solomon was seeing this. It would be in us. God would dwell in us. There would be a time that would happen. And then you go to 1 Kings 8, 31 and 32. And I love what it says there. I'm going to read a part of this. It says, when anyone wrongs their neighbor and is required to take an oath and they come and they swear the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. What's he saying there? Listen, when God's presence is anywhere in God's people and you need to resolve problems, it's always good to do that in the presence of God and the witness of others. It's a Matthew 18 principle. I love how all this connects. What does Jesus say? He says, where two or three of you are gathered together and you want to resolve issues, come together, do it under the covering and the banner of God's spirit, then he will reconcile those things that you're working through. You aren't going to resolve your problems on Facebook. You aren't going to resolve your problems on Instagram. You aren't going to resolve your problems anywhere else. He says, when brothers and sisters come together in my name, that's where those things happen. That's where you look each other in the eyes and you vow to each other that you will be true to each other after you're true to God. You're true to God and then you're true to each other. He says, this is how you do it. This is how you work it out. And then he goes on to verse 33 and 34. And I love what it says here. When your people Israel uh, have been defeated by the enemy because they have sinned against you. And when they turn back to you and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in your temple here. What does it say? God will always hear when his people are defeated. That when you fall and you stumble and you trip up, there's one place that you can go when that happens, and that is a beeline straight to God. God, it says here, go right to God. And you say this, God, I've been defeated. I have fallen. I've been tripped up. I'm coming to you, and I'm asking for your forgiveness. I need your forgiveness. You are the great forgiver of all people, and that's what you do. When we're defeated, we go there. What does the Bible say? Second uh, Chronicles seven fourteen. That that wonderful passage that we memorize. If my people will humble themselves and call on my name, I will heal their land. That's what he's saying here. He's saying if you come to this place after you stumble, corporately or individually, there is healing for you. God will do that. And then you move on through this prayer. Again, you move on to verses 35 through 40. And this is the place where it says God would hear in times of plague and famine. I'm so thankful for that because I think that's happened. I think those things are happening. And it says here, not only in the land, but I think the plague of our heart at times. Here's a good place to take inventory. Let me encourage you to do this. Take inventory, look at your heart, and find out where the plague is set in. Is it criticism of others? Is it being judgmental? Is it gossip? Is it What is the plague of the heart? Because you're being called back to this place in the presence of God, and it's only in the presence of God that you work out the plague of your heart. 
Not just the plague that sets on the land, but the plague that's internal. Man, I was looking at this and. Excuse me, but this was like a butt kicker on this one when I looked at this one. I'm just telling you, and I went, whoa, where are the places that have gotten numb? Where are the places that are dark? Where are those places? Is it how I think about others? Is it how I think about my friends, my family? Do, do I think when something happens immediately, it's their fault? Ooh. I'm guilty at times. Lord, would you help the plague on my heart? Deal with my plague here. And Solomon goes on in verses 41 through 43. Um, and what it says here is, is, is pretty amazing because he captures again just a few things about who we are again. And this has everything to do God would hear when a foreigner prays. I, I like this. I, I feel like a foreigner. Don't you at times feel like you're uh, alienated? Do you feel like you're by yourself? Do you feel like you're alone? You could be around a lot of people. I can be. I'm kind of that way. Uh, my nature, by, just by nature, I'm more of a recluse. I'd be more of, a, of an introvert. And so I know I have that feeling sometimes of what it feels like just to kind of stand alone, to feel like you're a foreigner in a strange land. But let's talk about real foreigners in strange lands. You can apply that today. Ukraine itself has millions and millions of refugees that have gone into other nations, and they are foreigners in a foreign land. We need to remember their plight. We need to pray over them because we know for them God is the answer. Can I say this? Whoever opens the door to a refugee or a foreigner, God looks at that, and he smiles. Did you know a lot of God's curse that came on the Old Testament was because they didn't treat foreigners well? Uh, I want to be good about that. You know, I want to be good. I was looking at this. Do you imagine? Can I just make this, put this in real terms? Most, of, a lot of the refugees of the Ukraine, where did they head? They headed Poland. Now, if you don't know history, if you do know history, that's very significant. Because what happened to the Ukrainians were one day they were in their home living their lives and literally within 24 hours they are displaced people and they're headed to Poland. Why did so many of them go to Poland? Because Poland knew exactly what it felt like in the fall of 1939 when one day they were living their lives and the next day Nazi Germany comes and displaces millions of people and goes after the Jewish populations and the marginalized populations. Imagine that. God says, when you help those people, and I'm so, can I tell you, you have given so much to a disaster relief that's gone to the Ukraine. Thank you. Because what you're doing is you're actually living by this scripture. You're taking care of those who are foreigners, those that have been broken, those that are refugees. And I'm going to finish with this. If you look at 1 Kings 8, 44 through 53, and I know we haven't had a, a chance to exegete every passage here. It just, it's almost impossible to do unless you want to be here a couple hours. But I want you to go through this and look at this on your own. But it's in this passage, these next few verses, next nine verses, that God would hear when Israel goes to battle and is made captive by their enemy. Solomon prays and he says, let them turn to you when this happens. And by the way, it happens about 367 years later. This temple is ransacked by the Babylonians. And those people go into captivity for over 70 years. So it happens. We just don't think it's going to ever happen to us. We don't. 
And I pray that never happens. But I also know spiritually this can apply in my own life, that God hears you when you are trapped by the enemy of your life, when you're trapped by an addiction, when you're trapped in relationship, when you're trapped in, in your past, when you're trapped by abuse, whatever that is, what does it say here? God says whenever you're captive, he will hear you and he will deliver you from your enemy. Who is your enemy? And say, God, I want to be, I need to be delivered and I want to take the steps to be delivered. Whom the sun sets free, say it out loud, whom the sun sets free, is free indeed. Father, we just thank you for today and for your blessing in our lives that you have given us a prayer that's worthy to model. And thank you for your people. And thank you for not holding back even the tough stuff that we're looking at here. We just know that you're a good God and that you would come work in our hearts. Lord, for anyone that needs to know you today, anyone that needs to be set free from sin, let them come to you. Let them ask for forgiveness. Let them be forgiven and be saved in Jesus' name. So, Lord, if there are any of us here in this building that are listening online that need to call on the name of the Lord for your salvation, let it be true in Jesus' name. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed. If that's you and you need to come to salvation in Jesus Christ, that you're captive to an enemy that seems to be so much bigger than yourself, would you know that Jesus in his name can set you free? He is your salvation. And if you're here right now and you, you're asking Jesus to come into your heart to set you free, head bowed, eyes closed, would you lift your hand? Because I'm just going to pray for salvation in your life. If you're online, you can do the same thing. Just lift your hand online or hit the thumbs up button let us know because we'll pray for you if you lifted your hand and i'm not seeing just keep your hand up for a moment so we can see you thank thank you for your courage and your faith to do this it's a big step i know it we're going to get something to you thank you both of you good thank you we're going to get something to you that uh, helps you it's kind of the, a beginner's kit really a beginner's kit that's what it is but all of us in this room, those that lifted their hands, can you repeat after me this simple prayer? This is worth our time. Let's pray this way. Dear Jesus, forgive me of my sin. And right now I invite you into my heart, my life. It is today, this moment, that I confess with my mouth and I believe in my heart that you are my Lord and Savior. Come and make my heart your home. I believe this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you applaud the salvation of the Lord? Would you do that? Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.